Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Come on, people. You know what time it is. That's right. It's pack filler time. What's pack filler? Well, let me tell you. Pack filler is the no-name guy in the pack. The filler. The nobody. The guy just happy to be in the race. It's also the baddest mother podcast on the internet. Hosted by has-beens who think they know something about bikes, training, and just about everything else. If you want to be a part of the show, shoot them an email at info at packfiller.com or follow their asses on Facebook, Twitter, or even watch the show. If you're into that... And now, sit back, open a cold one, and tune in to another episode of the Pack Filler Podcast. Okay, here we go. First week of the tour underway, and the racing has heft. A few more crashes, and there will be nobody left. ABM show, technically, although a guest is at bat, it's the Pack Filler Podcast with me, Just Pat. All right, I know that was a terrible, terrible opening poem, but, it, you know, I'm running out of ideas, people. This doesn't come easily. That was bad. Cut me some slack. I am a little bit lightheaded. I'm looking down at my calf muscle right now. It's abnormally huge right now. Not because I'm swole or I'm a super fit stud. Ah, summertime. Let me tell you, you know, this has nothing to do with cycling, but I got I to gotta throw it in there. I got to throw it out there. Um, I was working in my yard yesterday, working on, uh, we, have a, we have a spa, we have a hot tub, and it's, it's just about dead, so I'm getting rid of it here, okay? 
There you go. You have basics of the story. So I'm getting rid of it, and I'm gonna I'm gonna move it out. I'm gonna cut it into pieces and actually haul it away, just because it is beyond salvage. You know, it doesn't really work that well anymore. And you know, a dead hot tub in the backyard. All you got to do then is to really perfect the entire images to start parking the cars on the lawn. You know what I'm talking about? That kind of a look, right? So here I am. You know, getting into the hot tub, cutting it out and moving it around. I go to one side and I step on it and all of a sudden these bugs start flying all around me. And I'm going, what the heck? Did did I step on a nest of some sort? Yeah, I did. Um, Apparently, uh, yellow jackets had been nesting in the the actual ground beneath the hot tub. And so they came just flying out. And, of course, they were a little pissed that somebody's taking a sawzall to to the room upstairs. And uh, so I got a couple good stings um, before I freaked out and ran away screaming like a, you know, very young child. And um, so right now this morning I got up and my calves look like Popeye's forearms. I know that's an old reference, but some of you might get it. Swollen, red, they, oh man, they hurt. And so uh, so my cycling is probably a little bit, you know, on the on the hold until I... You know, until my calves are at least half the size of Fabian Cancellara's. So, uh, oh, man, this is the life. I have to admit something here. I am um, actually, I know I said a couple weeks ago on this show that I am a little bit down on the tour. Um, I am just like my marathon promise. I am going back on my word. I am loving the first week of the tour um, no, it's not about the crashes. Although God knows there are plenty of them. It is the racing. Uh, this is, I just had to come on and do this before I went into the, the actual interview of the show today. No tour as usual last year. Don't you remember by this time it was pretty much Nibali. We thought it was, that was pretty much going to be it. And, um, we have all the winners involved in there. The leaders are still there and they're riding smart. Man, I'm sad for Fabian though, along with a lot of the others, but mostly for Fabian Cancellara. And speaking of bad luck, if you haven't seen today, today is July 9th when I'm recording this show. If you haven't seen today's stage, shut off your iPod because I'm going to do a little spoiler. I'll even pause. That's so you can get the children out of the room. Can you believe um, Tony Martin's luck if you have seen the stage? Best and worst luck of any rider I have seen. Let's be honest, super close in the TT. And then thanks to Cav soft pedaling away the yellow jersey in stage two worsened then after that by a bike throw by Chris Froome himself and then he he has the the strength of character the strength of mind to hop on a you know a teammate's bike and attack and take yellow only to have today's horrid touch of the wheels I am recording this before I know any of his injury, but it doesn't look good. When you see a rider coming across the line with his his arm bent, it's either a wrist or a, or a collarbone, I'm thinking. And, oh, my God, I'm pretty sure Tony Martin needs both a Medal of Honor and some sort of reality TV show. His life has more drama than any Kardashian out there. Oh, man. But I hope, you know, other than the crashes, I don't, yeah, our crashes, they're part of the race. You just don't want to see riders crashing out and getting hurt. Um, you know, it's not NASCAR where we wait for the crashes. I don't watch NASCAR because so I don't know why I refer to it all the time. But, um, yeah, God, this first week is always crazy, though, I guess. I keep thinking back and I'm going, this week isn't worse than normal weeks. It's just insane. Um, and it's great racing. Highly competitive. You're seeing some guys riding uh, the cobble stage by itself, seeing some incredible rides um, by by some 
people who shouldn't be riding that incredible on those types of terrain, but it, it's cool to see. So um, today for you guys, I was fortunate enough to have a pretty darn cool guest, uh, Richard Fries. If you've ever been to any major events, you know who Richard Fries is, announcer, advocate, and pretty much all around cool guy. Uh, I got to catch up with him and get his touch on the sport, get his touch on uh, the U.S. state of affairs, I guess we could say how things are going here um, in terms of racing, in terms of advocacy, in terms of where the sport is growing to. And it, it was a cool discussion with him. And um, his views on, especially on the doping concept, are really interesting. And I, I got to hear a, a cool perspective on that. And I think it kind of potentially, I don't know if, it, know if it has always coincided with what I've thought or if it kind of strengthens or takes me in a new direction towards the opinions on that. Um, but I'll let you be the judge. So without further ado, it's an ABM show. I'm all by myself, but not really. Richard Freeze on the Pack Filler Podcast. If you're a member of the competitive cycling community, chances are you've heard this man's voice. Uh, been a, he's been an event and broadcast announcer heard all over the world, from uh, local crits and cross series to national and world championships. Um, I'd like to say welcome to Richard Freeze to the program. Thanks, man. How are you? Oh, great to be here. Love, uh, I just love all the great media around cycling. And uh, it's just fantastic what you guys do. You know, it's it's been an, an, a kind of an underground effort, a lot of grassroots, but there's a lot of, a lot of cool programs out there, and it's cool for us to all kind of, you know, be able to at least share some of our uneducated opinions whenever they're there. But, uh, hey, let's let's start. For the for some of the people, you know, we do – I have quite a few uh, triathletes who, who are involved in the show and some people who might not get to some of the larger events out there. But let's start with some perspective on you. Um, how did your life in cycling in, begin? Yeah, uh, it's really funny because my wife was yelling at me about our need to clean the attic, and uh, <laughs> so I was cleaning half my attic, and out came some old scrapbooks. And I have three kids, and I never put like very much on the walls or anything. But I started out, uh, you know, it's interesting because I'm, I'm I'm in the middle of writing some blogs about um, uh, about uh, sort of crappy suburban strip mall commuting, and believe it or not, I went to the University of South Florida. I had done a little bit of you know touring and such. But um, I went to the University of South Florida, and I couldn't afford a car, so I started riding a bike. And, and Florida's a pretty crappy place in 1978 to ride a bike. Uh, and a few weeks went by, and I realized, hey, nobody's ever passed me on my way to class, you know? And uh, so I entered a race. Next thing I know, I'm, you know, uh, next thing I know, I'm lining up in Central Park, New York. Next thing I know, I'm a Cat 1. Next thing I know, I'm standing in Spain. And, uh, you know, there's this, and I think I'm pretty good. And then this 21 year old kid kicks the crap out of me in a time trial. And <laughs> in a four kilometer time trial, he put 26 seconds on me. I was like, I don't know who that is, but that guy's good. And it was Miguel Indurain. Oh. So, <laughs> so I, you know, I got to get to a high enough level to where I got my teeth kicked in, uh, continued to race. I went back home, you know, with my tail between my legs, raced. Uh, regionally, you know, pro one, two on the road. And, uh, but I, I, I got a master's in journalism, started as a, you know, reporter in a, in a, in a New England daily and somehow got it in my stall to uh, start a regional cycling publication. And it really is, uh, you know, I, I have children now who are young adults and I'm trying to tell them life is not a shooting gallery. It's a pinball game. <laughs> Just get up in there and bounce around and see what happens. And uh, so I bounced around, and next thing I know, I'm doing uh, – because I was uh, an editor of a, of a cycling magazine, I, 
Uh, I get asked to do some commentary on the stage, and I knew every rider, and I knew a little bit about the sport. And then they realized, well, why don't we, why don't we quit hiring this drunk and, and hire you instead? <laughs> and, uh, so next thing I know, I'm, uh, you know, you, you, well, I guess Leo DeRosa said, given the choice, I'd rather be lucky than good. And uh, I got picked up. I was very passionate about cyclocross. That got me on the national circuit just as it was cresting. Next thing I know, I'm announcing at the world championships. I'm announcing at national championships. Um, so I got to be a live announcer. Did a lot of TV work for what was called OLN, which is uh, now NBC Sports. And uh, it's been a whirlwind of a uh, of a trip. And uh, it all came out in this scrapbook where I was there with a friend of mine from the Boston Globe last night. And I said, hey, check this out. He was incredulous. <laughs> he didn't even know I'd ever raced that well. So I didn't even, I had almost forgotten I had once upon a time to make a bike go fast. Hey, that's what that's so, uh, what, that's what man caves are for, man. I'm sitting in one more or less right now. I got old posters from all the old races and stuff oh, like yeah. that all around. So you just yeah, you just got to hide it so from that, your wife. Yeah, so I, you know, I, I that's what I did, and uh, that's sort of what I'm known for. But I'm also pretty hardcore at uh, bike advocacy, so I'm one of the weirdos that can actually. The running joke is uh, I'm a man in two canoes, and it's very hard to stay upright when you're in two canoes, the advocacy canoe and then the racing canoe. Okay. So as you know, I, I definitely want to talk about both. Let's start out as, as the announcer itself. You know, I'm a, I do some around my region and things like that. Awesome. What, what, in your opinion, makes a good or even great television or, or race announcer? What makes that, that position so special? Because I, I, I'm with you. I've been to events where it's a glorified DJ who's just got huge yeah. bass, you know, big woofers thrown out, gigantic sound, but very little is being provided outside of that. Yeah, it's, you know, cycling is one of the rare sports where the PA announcer continues after, you know, while there is competition, if you think about it. It's rarely do you see it where humans are in competition. Um, do they let uh, the announcer keep talking? Um, and so it's it's very unique in that sense. And I feel, um, you know, I, some people have been very generous to me in that it's interesting when I, A, I had a racing background, then I had a writing background, uh, a storytelling background. But when I was a reporter, I covered a lot of rock and roll. So I'm always counseling young announcers and I've learned, and I'm trying to counsel myself a lot more, which is like, you know, you don't have to always announce. Uh, you know, you can let it breathe. And for God's sakes, don't step on Mick Jagger's opening stanza <laughs> if you're playing a good Rolling Stones song. Um, <laughs> And a lot of announcers don't, uh, they think it's what they say rather than how they say it and understanding the cadence and when to let the crowd have their moment to just let them enjoy it. You don't just need to be hitting it all the time, which is a common mistake for, you know, uh, novice announcers, you know, but then when it's time, uh, and I really, it's, it's, I, I don't know, I still, uh, get great joy out of announcing regional criterion. So as much as I, I've done the World Road Championships, and that's fantastic. But I just love the sport that much. And uh, and it's actually, you have to have a little bit of cachet. It's really exciting when I can tell the crowd, uh, Laura Summers is going to win this criterion. And with one lap to go, and sure enough, she wins the criterion. And <laughs> you know how to do that. But the crowd's like, how do you know? It's like a magic act. Yeah. Um, but I really... It's, I think, in the American audience, the trick to the announcer, and I think the biggest mistake a lot of announcers make is they, they try to uh, 
read resumes. They try to, uh, well, this guy was 50 here and six there, and, and they're busy looking up databases that they worked on. And I really try to teach rather than talk. So I'm trying to teach an American audience about the sport. Uh, you know, I'm always talking about colors, shapes, and numbers. Look, it's all gone blue. That's United Healthcare. Uh, you know, look at the shape. Look at the numbers. And then I get great. I, I I'm a screw up, Patrick, in just about everything else in life <laughs> except for announcing migration. So I don't even know how much money is in my checking account. But um, so it's kind of like uh, I feel like a you have to watch the race, not just sit there and look at start sheets and data. Um, you have to. Um, uh, you have to teach. Uh, it's not what you say as much as how you say it. And it's also, um, it, it's a matter of you have to license a crowd that if you're not excited, why should they get excited? Um, well, and it's, and it's really unique because I've been at, I, I've been able to be on the set with Bob Roll and, you know, some of the other guys and they're great and it's really flattering. Um, but I get we lined up in Fitchburg last week, uh, two weekends ago, and yeah. I, I got to say, I got great satisfaction because we were in the rain. And uh, I know you're in California, the rain doesn't happen out there, but we have this stuff called rain. Yeah. And uh, and uh, the Cat Four Five, first race of the day. That was my most exciting moment because no crowd at all around, and I didn't even turn the microphone off. I just said, all right, gentlemen, I'm going to teach you how to ride in the rain. And you can tell these guys were terrified. Um, and they were really brave. Uh, it's a brave thing to race a wet criteria. You know that. Oh, God, yeah. But, you know, I check tire pressure. I tell them to stay in the saddle. I tell them how to steer steer with their ass. Don't steer, you know, don't go leaning into it. And, uh, and I, I was so proud. Four or five guys came up to me and gave me these wet, sloppy hugs. Uh, <laughs> because, uh, you know, it was such a brave thing for them to do. And they, and they all stayed upright. That's really satisfying to me, believe it or not, um, professionally. So, no, that's 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 I like that. That's a really good take on it. Um, you know, in terms of not necessarily being somebody who's just the talking head who's constantly up there. I've 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 worked with some people who come up with the little catchphrase that you'll hear over and over and over again, kind of following. Yeah. You know, and it's just it it gets monotonous, and, and I, the audience doesn't need to hear that the entire time. The crowd's there, first and foremost, to watch a bike race, and, and any information you can provide over top of that and make people excited is, is the key to it, so that's great. Yeah. Hey, you know, the, great. the sport itself, you know, the evolution of the years. Um, I also started cycling in the 80s, and um, how, the, how much has changed within the sport, not only domestically, cool. yeah. but internationally? I know that's a huge outreaching question, but, you know, yeah. can you think of some of the, the big ones and, and maybe even some of the bad ones? You know, we can't get away without mentioning, you know, our, our, the stigma of doping in the sport and, and you know, what yeah. good and bad moments have we had? Well, it's interesting. Um, and I feel like I've surfed uh, this sport through things. And I remember, you know, just to give your listeners some perspective, I remember uh, working a summer job. I had been yelled at by my father because after my freshman year of, of college, I announced that I had sold my bike, a perfectly fine Raleigh Grand Prix, in order to get just a frame with no parts, no wheels or anything. <laughs> and uh, it was, I felt like Jack and the Beanstalk. You know what I mean? Like I had come home and said I sold the cow and all I have is this. <laughs> and uh, my dad talked me to the airport where I went to a summer job in Milwaukee working uh, uh, with my brother hooking up a job. And uh, my, my father yelled at me the entire way to the airport um, about 
now I was getting into cycling after all these other wild ass adventures. And, uh, and I worked all summer to earn these parts for it. Uh, and it was interesting. I remember while working there, I went down and I bought, I'll never forget. I, 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 I went down to buy a copy of the Herald Tribune, you know, the international English paper. Uh, and this was at a newsstand. There were these things called newspapers, um, a while back. <laughs> and, uh, and I couldn't believe it. I had to show people, like, look, the Tour de France standings are there. It was three weeks late, and all I was no. getting was the agate results yeah. of the tour. So, um, and I remember thinking, we're never going to get a rider in that thing, let alone win that thing. And that was also the year that Le Mans won the Junior World Championships. So, it was, I. I just can't begin to tell people you have no idea how far we've come and on a parallel universe, the same as in advocacy and everything. And it's like, wow. Um, if the, if the next 40 years or like the last, you know, 30 years or whatever, I have no idea. I, I, I that is, um, uh, it, it, and there are so many driving forces in that, that made that happen. Um, but so for the most part, it's been this, amazingly fun journey to be part of and then just to bring it around to the bad stuff you know i doping has ruined my career three times <laughs> um and i'm not an anti-doping guy I, i'm i'm not condoning it so your listeners may want to vilify me on twitter or facebook but like when i was in europe when i was in spain i wasn't liked by the team i was on the podium a lot i was beating most of the guys but i wasn't the chosen rider and they kind of tolerated the American. I was a publicity stunt um, more than a serious writer. Um, I would have built if, yeah. I, if, if it was available. I'm not saying that proudly, Patrick. What I'm, I'm, I guess what I'm saying is that back then, doping was not viewed as cheating. It was viewed as devotion. Yeah, wow. The same way that a high school football player in Odessa, Texas, or you know, Pennsylvania or Wisconsin would view doping to get bigger in the high school high school football. You know, that's just seen as devotion. And I'm not condoning it yet. So so I guess, you know, A, I, I didn't get access to the dope. So even though I was offered a lot of bigger pro contracts, I turned them down to go to graduate school. Um, then doping came around again to ruin my career uh, <laughs> later on. Uh, it was interesting. I came back and I started racing at a regional level and I raced for a, a New England club, a famous New England club called CCB International. Oh, yeah. And uh, they had this 18-year-old kid on the team. And they said, you gotta, you, you won't believe this kid. And I was like, whatever. You know, I had seen a lot. And it was Tyler Hamilton. Okay. And yeah. so I rode about two or three seasons you know, between Tyler's Colorado teams and stuff like that, as he sort of moved his way up the ladder, occasionally racing alongside or traveling with him, not much, but that kid was such a talent. But as a result of that, when I was doing TV work, um, uh, OLN said, your job is to just follow Tyler Hamilton. Well, we know how that went. So doping yeah. ruined a TV career. <laughs> so, uh, uh, you know, and it's just, and I don't, again, I do not fault a 20-something athlete for doping. I really don't. I fault sponsors for turning a blind eye to it. I fault media for only writing about the guy that wins. And, you know, when the winner gets everything, people will do everything to win. Um, I fault um, 
certainly the spectators who you know who just gives all the adoration to people that win um but i and so it's like there's a lot of driving things into it so when tyler got popped i really lost a lot of respect for him not for doping i get it i totally understand it and, and people that are high and mighty about doping i always ask have you ever been seduced because <laughs> It, then shame on you if you say to, to fault a 22-year-old kid who is, and that's in almost any sport, um, uh, you know, and, and shame on the media for what happens in high school football, let alone college football, you know, that the media doesn't do, a, those journalists are hysterical. Um, so that was the second time it ruled it. And then the third time is that just about the time while I'm struggling to keep my magazine alive, I get a call and uh, uh, a guy uh, bring me up to the 10th floor of Liberty Mutual Insurance, and they say, we're having great success with this Liberty Seguros team. We don't know anything about cycling. <laughs> what can you tell us? And an hour and a half goes by, and next thing you know, they're like, you're going to be our American liaison for cycling. We want to invest millions in them. And I'm like, that's it, the golden ring. Here it is. Oh I'm going to be running the greatest program in the history of cycling. And then, and here's where it comes full circle, okay? Then Manolo Saiz gets caught holding bags of blood. (laughs) And the Liberty Segura, they just shut the program down right there at Liberty Mutual. And, uh, of course, all my dreams, hopes, and dreams fade. What people don't realize is that Manolo Saiz's assistant director was my team director in Spain. Oh, wow. So it comes full circle. And uh, and I guess my, my final thing on doping, and not even talking about Lance, which was, you know, uh, that's a whole other issue. But um, my thing on doping is that uh, I just don't think the, the riders should get all the punishment. I think the team should be sat down because the teams are very complicit in the doping. You know, so, uh, you know uh, I think the whole team should be off for 60 days, which is going to make the teams police themselves better than just having water or USADA do it. And uh, then I think the directors should be you know, if there's a second offense, the director should be gone. That Manolo Saeed got to come back to the sport is ridiculous. So, you know, that's so, that, yeah. that's a really interesting take on it because I think I was talking to somebody uh, during one of the initial stages of the tour, and we saw something amazing, and somebody did something incredible, and everybody in the room went, "Oh God, no, please no," and I think I turned to somebody and said, "You know what?" I don't know if we're ever going to be completely rid of it. Think about the situation. You're a 20 some year old kid who's put all of his eggs into one basket, all into this. And at some point somebody comes up to you and says, you know what? You're going to dig ditches or you're going to join the program. What is your choice? And, and I can't say, because I'm sitting here in front of a microphone talking about something, I can't say what the right thing to do is in that situation. But you know, that's a tough one. And it's interesting to hear your take on it in terms of not necessarily justifying it, but understanding the reasoning behind it. Yeah. I mean, uh, a great guy to interview would be Justin Spinelli, who wrote yeah. for Saeco Cannondale. You know, here was a guy that was, you know, he was pressured into doing by the entire team, yeah. not just. And then it's really... Uh, and I do think it's cleaning it. I, I do think it's a lot cleaner. I do think it's a lot better. You're probably talking about Rohan Dennis's amazing, you know, fastest average speed in a short time trial. Yeah. And I want to believe the best, you yeah. know? Yeah. I do believe the training's better. The equipment's better. The diets are better. 
Um, so, yeah. But at the same time, you do want them to go fast, don't you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's the thing. Uh, you know, it's a. I. I I've said to my wife the other day, I sometimes I miss the heavy doping tours because there was these absolute <laughs> insane moments on the bike where you're seeing somebody just do something that you could never believe. And it's just yeah. a fantasy. It's, it's a movie playing out for your eyes. And, and now everything's a little bit more equal. So I, you know, now, wait a minute, nine guys from the postal service are halfway up the climb. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, Hey, you know, how about, um, you're, let's talk about your advocacy for a minute. You're highly sure. involved in that part of the sport. Not just racing, um, uh, with with Mass Bike, with the, some of the organizations you're involved with. In what capacity? Well, um, you know, when I started a regional bike publication, um, you know, a lot of this goes back to being a college student in Florida. And uh, I can tell you, the day that it happened, I was uh, I had filled out my card for the Selective Service registration, the draft, yeah. you, know, you know, the military draft, because we were we were on a war footing with Iran. And uh, right outside the post office, heavy downpour just opens up as it does in Florida. And I'm under an interstate, you know, underpass. So I just sit there for a while waiting for the shower to pass. And I just see car after car after car with one driver in it. Um, uh, And this is like 1979. And I'm like, shit, I'm about to go to war just so these people can live this gluttonous lifestyle. (laughs) And it just sort of, uh, you know, it's just a switch went off. And, you know, then I, I was living my bike at the time, and you just start to, to see that. But then I would say that the, the, the huge ascendancy of, of uh, the quality of competitive cycling in America has been matched, if not even bettered, by the equal, you know, ascendancy of bicycle advocacy, uh, oftentimes in completely different vacuums, which breaks my heart. Uh, I think we need to build more bridges between the cultures. Um, so I really, as a journalist, I devoted my magazine to covering everything about cycling, and we were critically acclaimed. Uh, people loved what we wrote about, and I feel the racing community is all—they're the ones that are commuting the most. They're the ones that are riding the most. They're 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 encountering uh, suburban yeah. uh, transit issues and transportation issues, uh, rural uh, cycling issues, uh, which are very important. So, you know, I was. Um, I just really believed in it, and I still do, uh, uh, from a lot of perspectives that I just, I'm about to hit send on a blog on something like, here I am, I'm 54 years old, I wear the same size jeans I wore in high school, I'm not on a single medication, and as a result of living by bike, I own a home with three kids in Lexington, Mass., which is one of the highest, you know, most expensive housing markets and the best schools in the country, um, all because I lived cheap, and I didn't. I didn't piss away all my money on automobiles, uh, and I stayed really healthy. So I, I fervently believe we, we have the most perfect invention ever made, and I fervently believe this is the fountain of youth. So unfortunately, um, most people don't see it that way. So that's, you know, so that's where I'm at. But I will say that um, uh, I worked as my magazine was winding down. People for Bikes was – coming up and Kim Blumenthal gave me the chance to do some uh, development work and some corporate stuff with them. Um, And that really engaged me that much more. And during that, I I always felt like I didn't do as much for them as I wish I could have. But during that time, I did one, there was one Hail Mary pass that I threw. And 
I always go to the National Bike Summit, uh, which is sad. Um, you know, not one person from USA Cycling goes to the National Bike Summit. Wow. Think about that. Isn't that like, duh? Yeah. <laughs> um, and the people from all those wide range of bike advocacy groups are doing so much stuff. But the one thing I did was I, I brought Tim Johnson to the National Bike Summit. And I thought for sure he was just going to be bored because he's kind of a hep cat, you know. <laughs> uh, you know, he's kind of a cool guy. And, and he, got, he got there, and here he is in a room full of a 1,000 bike advocates, and not one person knew who he was, <laughs> which was awesome. Yeah. So uh, uh, it was great to see him, but he, he really soaked it up. And from that came the ride on Washington, the ride on Chicago, all these fundraising rides we do. Um, integrating people into the world of bike advocacy, the racing community, which is, I think, really important. And then from that, I got, it's kind of funny, then I got hired for this job at MassBike. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, It's a, it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Yeah. So what do you, what do you think it is? Do you think it's an issue in, when it comes to advocacy, there's, a, there's obviously the, the cars versus bikes issue. There's, um, as a, as a right. supporter of, of junior cycling myself, I find it tough to get kids outside racing. Maybe it's the parents worried about the danger or it's a paradigm shift sure. in terms of where the kids are going. Is it education? Is it infrastructure is, or is it, you know, is it a health crisis that we're suffering from? I mean, what do you find out to be yeah. some of the more predominant issues? Well, I'm standing here because um, <laughs> I'm standing here on one of the world's busiest, one of America's busiest bike paths in Lexington, Mass, the Minuteman Bikeway. Um, and I can tell you that in this little community, if you do a Strava heat map, um, you'll see there's this bright blue line along this bike path that I'm standing on. And if you look at that, if you overlay obesity stuff, um, we are better than most of Europe. You know, we are, we're not, I just watched my middle school son graduate 287 kids come up on stage and not one fat kid, Wow, which is unheard of. In that America. is unheard of. So it is infrastructure. It is also is culture. It is also education. It's all of those things that you mentioned. And I think we have to advance a lot of pawns on the board little by little. Um, so, yeah, and your stuff around kids is really important. Um, and I think that that's, uh, I want to believe that the tide might be turning, but then you look at uh, some of the elements of engineering and food. And I, I was never that big of a believer in food until I got into, uh, and actually Tim Johnson got me and Alan Lim connected. And I'm like, boy, you're right. The fast food stuff is horrible. The uh, 
Uh, high fructose corn syrup is bad. So I think it's a perfect storm yeah. for our kids, which is going to be a problem. Uh, the electronic Velcro of computers, which my 14-year-old boy is up in his room right now, you know, and I don't know what to do. Um, so I, I, I look at that as being also the great impetus for change. When I do speak, a lot of times I speak often to adults of, do you remember playing street hockey in the street? Because <laughs> that's gone, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, you, uh, and do you remember when kids just played in neighborhoods? Well, that's gone. Uh, so I feel that youthful, um, uh, you know, that romantic sense of an outdoor youth, uh, which is described well by Richard Lewis in his book, Last Child in the Woods. So, you know, I, I, but at the same time, I feel, honestly, Patrick, I think that there are three light switch moments in an American's life where you get a shot at getting them into bikes. The first one is in middle school. Their parents are confident to let them roam a little bit. Um, they have skills, they want to be social, uh, you know, and they get to ride a bike. And a lot of that depends on neighborhoods and stuff like that and yeah. engineering and infrastructure. The second one, though, I think is one of the most promising ones. And that is the age of 18, 19, when they go to college and realize, holy hell, it's just car expensive. <laughs> um, we know that the Brookings Institution found out a few years ago that whereas in 1990, uh, more than 50% of all kids aged 18 had a driver's license. That number has plummeted to like 29, 28%, and it's on its way down. Now, Patrick, if I had any hope of getting laid, I needed a car <laughs> when I was that age. Okay? Um, so, uh, kids today, they socialize differently. They don't need that. And what they view a car as, yeah, look around, maybe it's different in California, but I can't tell you the last time I saw a muscle car with a teenager driving. You know what I mean? Yeah. So kids, kids today view cars as it's a parking hassle, it's an insurance hassle, it's expensive. Um, I got to fuel it. It's just, it's really, it, the, the, it just doesn't deliver the return that it did for my generation. So I think that that year, that 18th, 19th year, just a, it's amazing here in the world's largest college town, Boston. You know, I can take you to places in Cambridge where it's, you know, 10, 15 percent of the people are on bikes. We know that 17 percent of the college students in Massachusetts live by bike. So that's a great opportunity. And then the other great opportunity, and speaking of what the amazing development of American cycling, is that the next great light switch moment, as a, a person rides by, I go, there's your perfect example here. Unfortunately, you can't see what I'm seeing. Is um, <laughs> You're 44 years old and you're in the doctor's office. Yeah. And it's like, dude or ma'am, <laughs> you're not going to see your kid graduate high school. Uh, you're in big trouble. Uh, and here's uh, a pamphlet for a charity ride. You know, and, the, and I believe the charity ride, goofy as they may be when they start, is has been as every bit as important as Lance Armstrong or um, the advent of the mountain bike or, you know, all sorts of things. Um, the charity ride movement, and I worked for Best Buddies International for a long time, I think is stunning. Um, and I love, one of the other things I do is I teach a lot of novice cycling. Um, holy hell, is there some bad information being spread out there for these <laughs> charity riders? <laughs> but I'm teaching them, and, and it's really, I never knew I knew so much until I watched other people ride, and I'm sitting there going, you have a $13,000 bike. 
Yeah. You don't know how to make a left turn. Yeah. Um, and stuff like that. So I think that those are the three lightweight moments. And I think that uh, culturally we should really um, gather around those three moments uh, as a culture and as an industry and as a, you know, uh, as a, if we, I think that's your moment. Well, I, I sure so hope. That- I sure hope affordability comes into it because that's one thing I've always I've always found, huh. uh, especially bike racing. It is it is not a cheap sport. I mean, I I could I have a lot more kids who are out there doing cross country because they say I got shoes, I'm in, I can that's go right. out and do it. I don't need all this equipment, and and that's that's a hard one in terms of getting people motivated to be out there. I agree with you at the terms of charity rides and fondos and things like that being yeah. a huge help because. If I am a new rider, I go out and I buy a USA license. Um, I'm, I'm in, I get in my first road race or crit, whatever it is. I'm pulled in three laps of the crit, or I'm dropped in the race. Why would I come out and keep You're doing done. this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why would I keep coming out and doing this? This was the most, you know, demeaning experience I've ever had. And when I was in the group, everybody's screaming at me. So I, I hope that there are formats of of competitive riding um for example i'll go out and announce a triathlon and everybody is so happy just to have finished and and in cycling we have a difficult time finding those types of events where they can do that uh, i entirely agree um yeah first off the cost shouldn't be a factor a decent you know you can get a 105 cad 10 which is a brilliant bike for yeah. you know under a thousand dollars but i would love to see um, Walmart, and I know this is out there, there's no reason we can't offer a decent single-speed road bike, you know, that'll get uh, a, a kid ripping around town really fast uh, for under $100. Oh, man. And that, you know, and you can get a, a, a an immigrant kid will blow the doors off some plastic surgeon on a $13,000 Cervelo, and the kid will be running on a, a single-speed, a cheap single-speed and a diet of government cheese and Kool-Aid, you yeah, know? Because he's out there doing it. That's his source of freedom. That's how he gets away from it. That's his method of transportation. And, you know, yeah, that's always going to beat the, the well, plastic surgeon. Uh, in my advocacy role, this is, and, you know, and I, I think you're absolutely spot on about the experience of an entry-level racer, which is why I love cyclocross. Oh, uh, yeah. Cyclocross has been great. They're no doing it great. No good or bad you're doing, you're racing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think cyclocross is a great entry-level place for that experience. I think triathlons have been great, too, because uh, it gets people into a fitness regimen that, that then they can transfer over. But the one thing that I, that, I, uh, would, that I think is really important in my advocacy role, when I started this job in January, I was coming into it thinking I was going to fuse the charity ride movement into the advocacy movement. I was going to be dealing with, you know, high level infrastructure, uh, on and on and on. And Patrick, I look around the people that, the people that need the bikes the most aren't getting, you know, poor folk. Yeah. Uh, and what's interesting is most of them actually have bikes with flat tires. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, It's like, if we could just put floor pumps out, at every subway and train station, you'd be doing a lot. And, and I find there's these little tiny things that are a problem. Um, a little bit of basic tools, a, uh, uh, inflated tires. Um, uh, and we, we have all these people running around throwing helmets at people. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like, 
if you watch the news and they say, and there was a plane crash, they never say, oh, by the way, the passengers didn't have parachutes. <laughs> well, it's like, well, a parachute is to a plane crash when a helmet is to a bike crash. I'm not saying don't wear a helmet, guys. What I'm saying is like, helmets aren't, by the time you're using your helmet, a lot of other things have gone terribly wrong. Yeah. Okay? And a lot of times it's the person didn't have brakes, the person didn't have lights, the person didn't have, um, you know, the, the person didn't have air in the tires. The person, person was riding know, backwards on a one-way. Yeah, riding backwards yeah. on, yeah, doing something wrong in terms of traffic laws, too. Exactly. So, you know, we were just able to, it hasn't actually happened yet. There is going to be a mandatory helmet law here, but it's going to go the way of yours in California. Yeah. Uh, we met with the Mass Medical Society, the sponsors of that legislation. And we successfully gotten them to realize, oh, like, duh, you know, uh, and I'm not anti-helmet. I wear one, you know, most days I ride almost all the time, but yeah. it, there's a lot of reasons that that's not, that's not making anybody, that's not making the entire population safe. No. You know what, so, you, you, uh, you mentioned earlier about the, just the concept of, of, of the equipment and pumps and things like that. I don't know about you, but there are three people in my family, and at last count, there were 17 bikes in this house, which, huh. which is, we, we had, I freely admit most of them are mine and I have a problem, but I'm sure there are a lot of idiots like me with gear from the 1980s. I've got Mavic GP4s I'm looking at across the room, seven-speed huh. hubs that I, I bet I could put a couple steel bikes together and, and hand them to somebody and we'd be, all of a sudden you've, you've created something for somebody else. Well, be still my heart, a GP4. <laughs> oh I my mean, God. Greatest rim ever made. I, mean, <laughs> I don't know the tire, the the wool, the invulnerables on there might even hold some air. Yeah, I don't know. yeah. <laughs> no, it's like that was a great era. Now you're really now I've got a soft spot for you. <laughs> the, um, but you're right. I have sheds full of stuff. I was happy. I just gave. A, I have a kid who's a, a, a kid, a, a young man who has launched a the Bowden bicycle in you know, in a, a very poor section of Dorchester, Massachusetts, okay. and a, a vocational, and I just gave him an Aegis carbon fiber bike with a, like a tag or group on it or something. I say, here, give it to somebody, like redo it. Um, and yeah, I've got steel frames in my shed. A great interview, by the way, for you would be Alex Doty of the um, Bicycle Coalition of Greater Philadelphia. Okay. Wonderful guy. And they just took over the administration of the Cadence Foundation. You may have heard of it. Yeah, I've heard of Cadence. Uh, Ryan Olker's group that he started. He just got overwhelmed by the administration of it. But they've got all these kids in Philadelphia. And what's cool about it, Patrick, is, uh, is that you go to, uh, when you watch the Cadence kids racing, they all have their Cadence jerseys. But their shorts are like a salad bar of every <laughs> club on the Northeast that you've seen over the last, you know, you can only imagine yeah. you know, if you're in California, you would see, you know, you'll see an Olympic pair yeah. of shorts with a roaring mouth pair of shorts with a LaGrange pair of shorts. And it's how many, I mean, I went out riding with a kid the other day. He's in cutoff jeans. I said, come by the house. And I was like, here, here's three pairs of big shorts. Yeah. So, you know, so yeah, I agree. I gave a kid a pair of, of knee warmers because he and I went out for his first ride in the fall and it was freezing. And and I said, yeah. do you have anything covering your legs? He says, no. And I, I hit through a pair of knee warmers that I just happened to have with me. So, and he just, he, his eyes got big. He was, he was like, it was the coolest thing in the world. I said, oh, if you think that's it, it this, this is the tip of the iceberg, buddy. I got a lot of crap I can throw at you. You know, 
uh, Patrick, I have this expression. I've really gotten into group riding and how we ride. And I've taken a lot of grief for it in blogs that I've been posted because I've sort of used the Walt Kelly line from Pogo. You know, uh, we have met the enemy and he is us. Um, how some group rides are all over the road, how people conduct themselves uh, for better or worse. Yeah. And, but there's, thanks to Jim Johnson, who sort of re, re-taught me how to ride well, where you can ride without a horn. Uh, and I'm going a little bit off the tangent, but basically in teaching how to ride that nice two-by-two and two stuff, I've, 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 I, I live by this motto, which transfers over to what you just said, which is a really good rider can ride at the front of the group. But the great rider can ride at the back, meaning if you love the sport, really, you can help other people get into it. You don't need to beat them. Yeah. You know, you can help them. You can teach. You can give them shorts and clothing. I get enormous joy out of that. We need a lot more of that. Yeah. Um, And it's kind of it's kind of weird. I'm kind of a Buddhist. I'm not a very good one, (laughs) But, uh, but I try. But I, I find that uh, the, the more that I've given back, the more stuff keeps coming at me, whether it's material or uh, compliments or kind gestures. Um, and I really can't say enough about encouraging people that have 10, 15 years of experience, you know, as a cyclist, really teach and donate and give. And, you'll, you know, you'll get back so much more so perfect hey you know my last my last transition here is going to be on stuff that's going on when we're recording this show uh, stage five of the tour just happened today and um first off you know you should be out there calling the action but second off um first of all your thoughts on the race and then you know what i it just blew me away the fact that we have three u.s riders in the tour this year um, what does that say about where the U.S. is headed and what we have coming into the program? Um, lowest number of Americans in 20 years. Um, and I, I I don't want to draw too much into it. I think it's just a fickle thing right now with the way contracts are. Um, so I think we have, you know, countless worthy Americans that, you know, they just don't get selected. But at the same time, I... Um, Boy, what a race. Uh, the, the stages so far have been fantastic. And I think that, um, you know, I, I, you know, I look at what it says about American cycling is, uh, I, I don't know. I, I, you know, one of my things is, is, um, I really, and I don't know if you've had a chance to talk to him. Um, I would advise you to a fine young man, uh, has just inherited one of the worst jobs in America, Derek Bouchard Hall. Oh, yeah. You know, as the, as the new CEO, he was a brilliant racer, but also a brilliant college student, and we're, we're lucky to get him. Um, and I can't wait to talk to him more. But, you know, one of my things is I felt like the marketing initiative, the, the limits of marketing from USA Cycling, so many of those people are, are very good friends of mine, and I work for them quite a bit. But I feel like their marketing and communication strategy is basically, if we can just win the goddamn Tour de France, everything else will take care of itself. Well, <laughs> we did. And it didn't, you know, and it, 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 didn't, it didn't pan out quite that way. But it, in some ways it did. It got a lot of people into the Tour de France. It got a lot of, it got a lot of sponsors into it. But I really feel as if um, we are still not really 
taken seriously in our sports media. I think we have a little bit further to go in in uh, building a marketing and communication strategy uh, around the healthiness of the sport, around the lifetime and lifestyle sport that it is. Uh, so I believe that uh, I'm not too worried about uh, there being only three riders. Uh, I, but I do believe that now that we've, I think we have to rethink what we're doing. Um, and I really think we need to, I would like to see a really strong club system. Um, cause there seems to be, there is a pro level and then there is a, um, then there is everything else. Yeah. And I believe that a really strong club system ultimately is a more stable uh, system to develop youth riders, but also to develop proteins. You know, many of the, the teams in the Tour de France are just the pro extensions of a very big club. Yeah. They, you know, uh, the great example was the Uskatel and Scotty team. That's, that's just an athletic club that happens to have some really fast guys. Yeah. That, um, a lot of the French clubs, a lot of the French teams stem from that. So, well, I remember. Um, I remember. Seven Eleven was the East Side Wheelman. Correct. Yeah. So I mean that. You so, know, did... Yeah, I, I would like to see a strengthening of the clubs. Um, but I will say that for racing, I do believe, and I'll say this, and I don't want your listeners if they're this far into it, they're they might need some therapy. But um, <laughs> I, I think we need to. I will say this over and over and over. I'm about to launch a program here in Massachusetts and I'm hoping that I'll get a sponsor from a very powerful uh, outdoor clothing gear company. But um, like I am launching a program where every Massachusetts USA cycling club has to adopt a middle school. Oh, wow. And no cost, zero cost, show up, pump up tires, adjust helmets, talk to kids, say, we're going mountain biking this Saturday. You want to go? You know what I mean? Families yeah. are welcome. Uh, obviously, you know, but it's a real simple, low-cost thing. But I think that for the sport to succeed, we really need to bolt on to the advocacy movement. Because right now, the sport in America is seen as a terribly narcissistic, yeah. uh, uh, um, not a very appealing, uh, elitist thing. I don't think that's true, but I think that's if that's how people believe, if that's what they believe, then that's what you have to you have to tackle. So, uh, so I think that USA Cycling needs a really big youth movement. Um, talk to any sponsor, and if they hear that, they're like, "Great, where do I sign?" Yeah. Oh, you want to fund a six rider masters team? Uh, now I'm all set. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But I, I I made the the joke a couple years ago, saying that you know we're we're turning into a sport just of middle aged. And white men, and and I I hope right. that isn't where it where it ends up. So, um, yeah. so speaking of the tour, you know, I don't mean to throw you under the bus, but do you have a yeah. prediction? Do you have anybody you think that's going to overall? Uh, yeah, um, boy, I got to tell you, now that I get to have watched the first week, I loved last year the wet Roubaix stage. I oh. thought it was great. Yeah. You know, I love cyclocross. I love Lars Boom and Stebar, and I think cross riders are the best bike riders overall. Um, so I love that they added that. And, um, and I am tired of, I, I first off, and unfortunately, you don't have enough time, but I can tell you so many cool stories of being at the world championships and stuff and, and what a nice 
nice man, Chris Bloom is. But last year I thought, like, guy doesn't know how to ride his bike. Oh, he and looks like a was, dying spider. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you and I should hang out. I called him the spider monkey. Yesterday. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> but it was like, at the same time, you know, despite the whining, guess what? The way he rode the cobbles this year, I was like, there you go. Yeah. That we can't just make athletes. And this is my one big thing. I don't want to see us make athletes out of laboratory experiments. You know what I mean? There's more <laughs> to it than power to, rate, power to weight ratio. Yeah. So that's why when I watched Froome, I was like, wow, that guy's going to win the whole thing. Um, if he's carrying that kind of form. And the way he rode, uh, he rode brilliantly um, on those cobbles. And I think he's riding in a very good defensive way. I don't know if it's team strong enough. So, but right now I like Froome. Um, and I would say uh, Green Jersey, I think Sagan's going to do it because he's going to be the most consistent overall. Yeah. Uh, Polka Dot Jersey is going to be an interesting one. I think it's going to be Quintana. Uh, but you know what? Actually, Quintana, typically the Polka Dot Jersey goes to not necessarily the best pure climber. Yeah, because ever um, since Jalabert used to go out on those monster attacks early on, that whole contest has kind of changed. God. Jalabert, man, you are just winning me over. Yes, what a great <laughs> fight. I mean, just how boring so many riders are today. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, and I would like to say, uh, you know, I, and I think we'll see a double jersey for Sagan, uh, the white and uh, yeah. the green. But uh, I don't know. It's uh, But if I was to try to pick the trifecta, you know, it's really funny when you tell people who was second and third last year. Um, and they struggle <laughs> with that. Yeah. Um, well, it was two Frenchmen, uh, you know, yeah, Pino and Pino. Uh, and yeah. JC Perot. Yeah. So, uh, so I, I think the bigger question, the funner thing is like, well, if Frenchmen ever win that damn racing. Oh <laughs> God! <laughs> yeah. Oh. Yeah, I, I think I, I tweeted yesterday about the cobble stage, saying, "Don't drink the Pinot because it's bitter." Oh, he had a he had an ugly day. So, well, okay, there but we are. Also, Never yell at your mechanic. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's not gonna. That's not gonna help. Your bars might be a little loose tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, that ain't gonna go well. Yeah. Now. So where yeah. are you? Where are you headed to next? Where Where can? Uh, what races? It's really interesting. Uh, it's really interesting. I have weddings the next two weekends, so I'm like, huh? I can't take any gigs. I'm doing um, uh, pretty much staying local this year, which is great because I took this full time job where. A, I'm the executive director at Mass Bike, and B, I have to show up on time. But uh, so I'm staying local. I have um, a couple of uh, great criteriums uh, later in the in this month. Um, I get to uh, uh, I'll I'll be doing a, some stuff in August, uh, Danbury, Rochester, smaller stuff, uh, and I'm really just saving my pipes for cross season. And it's kind of funny. Um, I actually took out a license and started racing. I did my first race in about 10 years. Got second place. I was pretty excited. Um, So I'm looking forward to, we have some great dirt road races and rides out here. Um, And I will tell you, if you're into, if you ever get a chance for your listeners to do this event, uh, it's called the Vermont Overland Grand Prix. This is only going to be the second year. It is such a ride. It is a, uh, uh, it, it, it is a cyclocross bike, um, 50 mile, really hard thing that you just can't, you're going up like these, uh, unbelievable, uh, double track Jeep trails. Oh yeah. Uh, and it's, and then you're doing, uh, 
you're doing defense that uh, for me it's like a Jerry Lewis movie. I'm just screaming the whole way down <laughs> the thing. Uh, so it's just great. So I'm actually uh, I'm going to try to ride and race a little bit in August. Uh, then we get ready for cross season. So oh uh, yeah, we have a big weekend, and uh, I'm probably I probably have to forego uh, calling the world championships because I have to actually speak at a lot of advocacy things, but. I'll probably be down in Richmond in all the week to watch some things. Oh, but that should be a great, great, great event. That is, yeah. We get them here. We finally get them here. Well, yeah. um, first and foremost, uh, I wanted to thank you for, for being a part of this this episode. Um, you have a great perspective on the sport throughout, you know, wow. being involved for a long time and being involved with going through, like you've said, the, the top, tough times, the, the you know, the times where we firmly plant our palm in our foreheads in in terms of racing and also <laughs> and also in terms of this you know your advocacy and trying to get an idea of how we can how, you know not to quote the whole oj thing but how can we all just get along um and i think that's a huge issue and man you've got some great ideas and hopefully some of us out west are listening and can get those things involved well, you're all doing yeah it's amazing how many people are doing great things and uh for all those people that are banging their heads on cables just just keep at it. We, we really need everybody doing what they're doing. So yeah. thanks for uh, flattering me. Hey, no, no. Thank you for being on the show. Okay, great. Okay, gang, there you have it. Richard Freeze on the Pack Filler Podcast. Good insight. Um, and I guess we could all follow a little bit of the guidelines. Everybody get involved and try and get somebody out there into it. Tour de France. Tour de France. Again, if I spoiled it for you, it's your own fault. I told you to turn it off at the beginning of the show. We are, I'll have something for you next week. we got to talk about this show every week, uh, this race every week, for sure. Stay tuned. Thanks, you guys. We'll catch you, I don't want to say on the flip side, but later. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.